Synchronicity will take you along. And here's your host, Travis William Skink Mateer. That's right, I'm your host, Travis Mateer, and this is another episode of ZoomCron. That's short for the Chronicles of ZoomTown, and ZoomTown is where I live. For those of you unfamiliar with the podcast, Zoomtown is Missoula, Montana, but it could be many places, uh, many places that use public financing to better the the public, you know, health uh, of the community, and that's kind of what I'll talk about a little bit today because this is January eleventh, two thousand twenty-two. That's one 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 two two for you uh, number obsessed people out there. Numerical stuff sometimes pops up in my head. I do have one, 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 one stitched on a, as a patch on my backpack. So I think about that stuff sometimes, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about a documentary that went public on Vimeo. And that was January 5th is when that actually went public. It was actually uploaded though, January 3rd to Vimeo. And for two days, we kind of had a limbo situation in which I had to give some thought to Sort of some of the elements I wanted to put in place before before making the big leap um, and putting out there the culmination of you know, when I say a year, um, yeah, the actual project took about a year to um, do all the interviews and um, edit and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the team, in which I will kind of explain why I'm not going to get specific on that, but the team has collective experience when it comes to reporting on local dynamics, tax increment financing being just one of them. So, but the documentary, it is called Engins Missoula. You can see it at enginsmissoula.com. Think of it as kind of a billboard, enginsmissoula.com, like an online billboard, because it's not a fancy website that, that is all mobile friendly. So I will warn you about that up front. Um, and I'm also going to get into some of the initial feedback. It's only been f- six days, six days. So we went live January 5th and it is now, like I said, January 11th, 2022. And the time period that the documentary covers is kind of starts October. Was it 16th? I think it was October 16th, 2019. Um, <laughs> I should have the dates r- correct on my own project, right? Um, but that was the date, mid-October, when J. Kevin Hunt saw a, a opportunity to provide public comment about a big public giveaway to a guy named Nick Shakota, who ultimately ended up not getting that, that public financing for that big project. Um, this time period goes up until February 2020. And then in March 2020, I think we all know what happened. The world changed, kind of went crazy, a little bit nuts, and we're still dealing with the fallout. Um, and I'm going to actually discuss that also in this little intro. Um, and and so it's been it's been very interesting to think about that time period uh, because um, we have not had public comment really since um, since I think April is what the the article that I'm going to discuss 
uh, from the Missoula Current, from Martin Kitston, who does have a role in this documentary in terms of being one of the people that uh, one of our interviewees uh, discusses and talks about and thought about litigating against at one point. Oh, so much fun, so much drama. Who ever thought that something like tax increment financing would be so exciting and so engaging? One of the things I did want to mention uh, up front is Jesse Ramos and congratulating Jesse Ramos, not just on the fact that he's in a pretty fantastic documentary in my not so humble opinion, but I didn't realize until I think like a week ago that Jesse Ramos has a small part in a little series you may have heard of called Yellowstone and that adorable face, Mr. Ramos. Um, is next to Piper in the in the season finale, and Yellowstone is actually something that that was ever present in the thinking of the people involved with this project, because it touches on themes that the West is experiencing, Montana specifically, and so it was very interesting to have Jesse Ramos play a small part in Kevin Costner's Yellowstone. I mean, I've even spoken about Yellowstone in a in a interview with Michael Wan, a synchromistic about the synchronicities involved with Kevin Costner. And so, hey, just let's, let's keep those synchronicities rolling. Um, so before I get to some of the Missoula current Martin Kitston garbage, I do want to mention that, you know, first of the year, beginning of 2022, I am actively lining up some interviews and I'm hitting up some podcast folks that have already been on their podcast. And so this is, you know, kind of a trend that, that happens I know it's sometimes referred to as a swap cast in which uh, they will post it on their feed. Um, You know, if you're sitting on an interview and you are going to be taking a week off, if you're trying to maintain a schedule of consistent content, like, for example, the propaganda report. And I'm going to be speaking with Monica Perez and Brad Binkley. Officially, I I put up a a sort of aborted part of my use of that term. A, a, a shortened portion of an interview that I did with, with Binkley and Monica, but I got into things I wasn't prepared to sort of get into specifically around some of the Johnny Lee Perry stuff here locally. Um, that's a man that was shot and killed by sheriff deputies, still uh, unnamed sheriff deputies here in January 2022. He was shot August 29th, uh, 2021. So quite a long time to not get any specific information on just the basics, but um, I got into some specifics in that interview, and so I was not able to put the full interview out, and even doing the interview in the first place, there was some miscommunication, so uh, we're we are all going to be, I think, more prepared because I've already written bullet points about stuff I want to talk about, so I'm very excited for that, and then Adam and Chut X, I'm going to be hopefully talking to them Sunday, so that could be going up as early as Tuesday. And let's see. Oh, that's right. I need to discuss what interview you're going to be listening to after I'm done blabbing away. So David Merriman is a tax increment financing expert, although early on in the interview, he says he hasn't really been working specifically on this type of policy for a couple decades, but he was interviewed um, and plays a small part in the documentary. And I've been kind of sitting on this interview. It's short, 30 minutes, um, little, little trick up my sleeve uh, that I was hoping to be able to put out at some point. And this is now kind of a perfect opportunity to have a 30 minute interview with a expert. So that is going to be coming up. But, but before we do that, let me just get my phone here because I want to I want to discuss this this garbage, 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 garbage that Martin Kitston wrote. And it's interesting because <clears throat> 
excuse me, as, as I mentioned, there has not really been a, a, from my understanding, since April 2020, there's not been a public meeting of the city council in which the public was able to go in person and see their elected officials. So it's it's been Zoom. Uh, and there's actually been some controversy. So Jay Kevin Hunt has not gone away from, from doing his rabble-rousing thing and actually was participating in one of these virtual meetings when another participant, another citizen who plays a small role in the documentary, had his microphone cut off by the mayor, uh, ostensibly for speaking inaccuracies. And so that's a thing. Uh, I wrote a post about that, and I will include that in the show notes. But let me get to a post that kind of gets into this. And the title of this post, again, I'll add a link in the show notes, but it's, oh, it's fun. And I'm, I'm just going to kind of read it, I think, is what I'm going to do. And the title is Hybrid Council Meetings, comma, Lingering COVID, comma, and a New Normal Poem by Gwen Jones. That's right. Gwen Jones did not know that she was writing a poem, but... She did, just like Donald Rumsfeld wrote many poems, and not intentionally, and we'll we'll get into that. But let's begin this post. There is tons of stenographic fun in this Martin Kidston piece, including an unintentional poem by Gwen Jones. So let us dig in, beginning with the lingering effects of COVID. So this is the quote. With the COVID virus likely to linger, In its various forms, the city of Missoula is taking steps to return to in-person meetings while retaining a virtual presence, end quote. Yes, the various forms of COVID are getting hilarious, like Deltacron and Flurona. That's serious. I'm I'm serious about that shit. It's crazy. Locally, we'll see new strains of COVID like the Larch Montacron variant and maybe SARS-TIFF-22. Uh, that's a joke, by the way. I wonder if there might not be some kind of political advantage to embracing this COVID uncertainty. Let's get back to the quote. Another quote. The hybrid model was used successfully by Missoula County earlier last year, at least until a new strain of COVID forced them back to virtual meetings only. The city has been considering its own hybrid approach and could launch it this year if, if, if conditions allow, end quote. Yes, the county dipped its toes into allowing the public access again, but a new strain forced them back to virtual meetings. How convenient. Quote, we've developed some metrics with the health department, as well as Missoula County, to give us a go, no go, as far as getting together in person, said Missoula Mayor John Engen. We have public health to consider. There's a bold emphasis there. Over the last two years, we've learned there is tremendous unpredictability associated with the virus and this pandemic, end quote. My bold emphasis is the brash claim that public health is our mayor's main consideration. Yeah, right. I'm sure the ease of turning off the public's Zoom mic when they displease Lord Engen is not a part of his consideration at all. Quote, The city council last held an in-person meeting in April 2020 and has worked remotely ever since. Attendance among council members has remained strong, however, and bold emphasis coming, participation hasn't waned under a virtual format, end quote. Hmm. My bold emphasis in this quote has me wondering if Martin Kidston is under the influence of alcohol. 
like he was when he approached Matt Wardell, a local citizen who had been showing up in the groundswell of opposition to tax increment financing policy. Something covered in a little documentary you may have heard about. Humble brag, humble brag. That's not in the post, but let us continue. I would like to see the evidence Martin Kissin is basing his assertion on that participation hasn't waned under, under a virtual format. Quote, but Engen agree that working in a virtual environment with 12 council members can be challenging at times, and with four new council members now part of the process, camaraderie can be lacking. Okay, I'm going to just pause really quick. Camaraderie can be lacking. I don't understand that at all. If anyone has insight into how camaraderie can be lacking is like somehow conditioned on this, these four new council members um, now being a part of the pro process, it, that, that just is a confusing thing. Um, I, is Martin confused? I'm, or is it just me? Do I have reading comprehension issues? Let's go back to the quote. Quote, this Zoom environment is challenging, but it's practical. And for the time being, it's effective, Engen said. I think we all recognize that I look forward to a time when we all can be in a room together and learn a little more about one another. Yeah, like maybe your criminal backgrounds and how you can find weaknesses and ways to divide and conquer and exploit, you know, disabilities, especially among a veteran population. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that my insertion into the into the quote? Okay, my apologies. I didn't realize I was speaking out loud. Let's get back to that quote. Um, I think we all recognize that I look forward to a time when we all can be in a room together and learn a little more about one another and develop a relationship. So we're sharing ideas a little more freely and outside the confines of little boxes on the screen. Boy, I hope that Mayor Engen is able to get out of those little confines um, because being stuck in confines uh, in, behind a, a screen and little boxes, that sounds terrible. Let's get back to what I was saying about that. Yes, the Zoom environment has been very practical and effective for government, government sausage makers who became squeamish and borderline hysterical over the public's ability to scrutinize how the sausage was being made. To conclude this post, I'm using a technique of poetic transformation applied by Hart, applied by Hart Seeley to Donald Rumsfeld quotes. The irony of me turning a Gwen Jones quote into a poem is definitely not lost on me. So, ladies and gentlemen, the poetic debut, before we get to the David Merriman interview of Missoula City Council President now, Gwendolyn Jones. Here is the poem. It's called <clears throat> New Normal. We seem to be shifting into a new stage of the pandemic where we're going to be having to figure out life going forward as we take it into account. There are lots of shifting sands in that scenario, but we're navigating forward as a community and as local government, trying to figure out a way forward as a new normal. Oh, amazing leadership is what I write underneath that. And then I write 2022 is looking fantastic. Capital letters, screamy. Keep at it, Team Engen. Um, and really, no, just keep doing what you're doing, Team Engen. Um, and content creators with talents um, and zero fucks about the forms of retaliation that are already kind of manifesting. Yeah, yeah. We'll keep doing our thing. 
That's right. Um, and speaking of doing our thing, um, in terms of being able to view this among your peers, among your fellow Missoula citizens, will, will there be opportunities for that? The answer is yes. Um, we'll see. I'm focusing on churches. And on that front, there will be one coming up on January 17th. The church tour is going to be a part of a broader tour that I'd like to call TAT. That's T-A-T. That's TIF Awareness Tour. Um, I will be asking people if they would like to get tatted. Would you like to get tatted? When the weather warms and the roads in Montana get a little bit less, you know, deathy, I am really excited to take this on the road, to go to, to communities with a thumb drive and a passion for tax increment financing exposure. Um, and part of that will be to kind of politely shame the conservative Republicans in, in different parts of the state for not being more proactive at the state level when they had power, let's say in like 2019, I don't know, um, to do more, more um, in 2021 also, do more, do more to rein in what is clearly a just inability of local jurisdictions, local municipalities to control themselves. Um, Jeff Badenoch, the former Missoula Redevelopment Agency director who we interviewed, God bless it, Jeff. Thank you so much for sitting down. Um, probably wasn't aware that that guy interviewing you was so damn educated about TIFF. Knew his TIFF inside and out. He he TIFFed up and down, you know, the the up and down, you know, the the TIFF-enabled sidewalks. Was that TIFF? But um, it, was, it was nice to hear Jeff explain the seduction of TIFF. You know, it's like you don't get to vote on it. There's unelected board members picked by the mayor to just kind of, you know, pick and choose what they please and smart, smart, capable Ellen Buchanan gets to just sort of, you know, blight, blight there, blight, blight here, blight everywhere, here a blight, there a blight, everywhere a blight, blight, blight. It's the song that runs in her head, I think, maybe, um, just purely speculation on my part. And another part of speculating, um, we are reaching 18 minutes in this introduction. So I think that is, that is more than enough time. The interview, it, coming up is short. It's about 30 minutes. So this won't be a really long episode here in Zoomtown, January 11th, 2022. Thank you for listening. I'm your host. Uh, you can reach me at willskink at yahoo.com still. Uh, and I'm on Telegram. I don't do the Telegram. I don't want to add more online interactions. Really, I don't. A lot of things to do in meet space in Zoomtown on the streets, but um, you can reach out to me um, lining interviews up. I want to do a sort of mixture of uh, people that don't live in Zoomtown, but definitely people that live in Zoomtown. So yeah, hit me up. Coming up, David Merriman, thank you for tuning in. Tune in next week. So okay, so I am very excited today to be speaking with a experts in, in a sort of esoteric subject called tax increment financing. Um, it's a topic that I'm very interested in, um, and I have uh, listened to David Merriman speak about this um, actually a couple of years ago, December 18th, 2019. You were interviewed by NBC Montana, um, and, and so we're going to talk a little bit today about tax increment financing, but Professor Merriman, I was hoping you could maybe give... Um, a layman's description, if you could, or maybe even a little bit of background about how you got interested in this topic of uh, tax increment financing. I'm, I'm very interested in your definition and your background. So, 
Uh, oh, okay, sure. I'll, I'll I'll try to remember. It's been more than twenty years since I've actually been working on this topic. So, oh, okay. you know, I've I've been interested in in particular about. Um, how communities encourage business and what the, you know, how the, how that affects the property tax. And um, so uh, a colleague actually came to me and started talking about this at that point, relatively new technique that was being used um, to kind of to encourage economic development and, and whether it was being used appropriately or not. And one of the things I found is that, um, you know, as, the legislature passes laws and develops kind of uh, techniques. Um, often they, there's a lot of flowery language in the legislation about trying to help, you know, particular groups and, yeah. and, and then sort of local elected officials and businesses get a hold of it and they kind of work together and they find expanded uses for it. And so, you know, we were immediately thought that that might've been you know, it's something that would go on here too. Yeah. So, you know, in, in short, this is a technique uh, that um, I think it's intended, you know, the intentions behind it are very good. And the idea is that, um, you know, if you have a place that's very hard to develop where a, a plot of land or particularly a blighted area where there's not much economic activity going on, and the city and the, the, the people around there really want to see that developed, um, you know, it, you might want to encourage pe- private parties to invest in it by saying, okay, if you invest it and that raises property values, the revenue that you're generating from these increased property values, we'll promise to take that revenue and use it to help support your development. Right. So a typical example might be, you know, there's an old building that's, you know, needs to be torn down and you want to build a new uh, factory there. Um, And so you tell the the investor that maybe um, if they agree to to build that new factory, um, the increased property tax revenue will be used to uh, to pay for the land, they can use part of it to pay for the land, and there may need to be improvements to the street, curb cuts, that kind of thing, yep. even new sewers, and all of that money will go towards that purpose. So that was the intention. You know, what what we found is that very often um, these uh, um, tax increment finance districts mm-hmm. are used. Um, in ways that it doesn't seem like the legislature intended. So it's used to develop, uh, it's used to support development that would have happened anyway, or right. it's used to help one city com, uh, compete with another city, or sometimes it's used by municipal governments really to take advantage of the fact that a lot of the property tax revenue would otherwise go to the school district. And so the, it goes into the city coffers instead of the school district coffers. So those are the kind of some of the issues we've found with it. Yeah, and it's been really interesting to kind of look at larger municipalities and, you know, Chicago has been a very infamous uh, example because I I don't know if that was around 2009 or 2010 where there was a pretty big study that looked at about a billion dollars in in, over a long period of time of tax increment financing and and how much private sector revenue sort of generated. Um, And and the breakdown was was sort of skeptical, I think, of, of the public benefit ultimately um, of what tax increment financing was doing in practice on the ground. 
Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, Chicago has been used it more than I, I would say anywhere else in the country, at least that I'm aware of. St. Louis yeah. has used it a lot too, but but Chicago has been right up there. Um, and in general, the the uh, it's used in Chicago because property taxes are relatively high, particularly business property taxes are relatively high. And, and it's true in general in the Midwest, you find that Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan all make pretty big use of it because property taxes are used a bit more than they are in other parts of the country, I think is really the reason for that. Yeah. And, and, and in Chicago, um, you know, it's been used, it's somewhat egregious cases in downtown, in the downtown area, which is already very prosperous relative to a lot of the outlying areas. And it's been used very, very heavily there. Now, you know, the defenders of TIF will say, well, you know, the downtown area really drives the economy. Yeah. And so you're getting some benefit, even though you don't see it. But, you know, the people in the neighborhoods are saying, well, you know, you're taking development, it's all going on downtown, and you're not really making as enough of an effort out in other areas where there's a lot more blight. Yeah, in Missoula, the strongest argument of, of TIF supporters really is looking at the downtown core in the 80s. Um, so during the 80s, in a lot of communities, uh, mall development or, or suburban development was re really pulling a lot of economic activity away from downtown cores. And so in Missoula, the argument has been from our elected officials that um, during the 80s, downtown was really suffering um, because of the Southgate Mall and all the suburban development that was happening. And so there seemed to be a pretty good argument for TIF being an incentive to encourage private sector investment in, in the downtown. But now in, in 2021, um, you know, what, what kind of brought you into, into looking at Missoula was a $16 million um, tax increment financing giveaway, so to speak, to Nick Chicota, a, a developer from Wisconsin. Um, and this whole scheme was going to uh, help fund a parking garage. And then that was going to be this complicated scheme that helped get this big convention center built. Um, and that really sparked some local outrage and local criticism. Um, and, and I guess to, to further explain for listeners that might not be aware of tax increment financing and how this all works, um, really it is the state that the state legislature that sets the definition for what blight means. And what ends up happening is if that definition is, is sort of broad and loose, then municipalities like Missoula gets to sort of um, continue to define uses. Um, and so one example of that, after all this controversy in 2019, it was determined by our elected officials that the public is really just kind of stupid about tax increment financing. And so they wanted to develop a communication plan. And this is amazing to me because $46,000 was used from the, the, the Missoula Redevelopment Agency to a consulting firm to develop a communications plan um, to better inform us, the public, about what is being done because um, they were really concerned that we're just too stupid to get this. And so um, can you maybe speak to, to how the state defines blight and, and then really what municipalities are able to do if that definition is too broad? Yeah, you know, well, that it varies by state, um, yeah. and I, I don't, I don't know that, and you know, not actually, not all TIF plans have a definition of blight. There's different okay. state, le state legislation sets the conditions under which TIF can be used, and right. in Illinois, we've got you know a number of different categories. So blight is not; it's a, it, one type of TIF is can be used to eradicate blight, but there are also different types of TIF, uh, including TIFs that just uh, that are just for the purpose of developing areas that haven't previously been developed. It's almost greenfield development that you, okay. you can do that. Um, but, um, 
you know, typically, you know, I, I don't, I don't either know or remember the exact Montana definition of blight. I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. But, but you know, in Illinois, we have uh, five or six categories that you can use. Uh, you know, and they're quantitative estimates. And there are consulting firms that are, you know, expert at figuring out kind of how to play this game. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing, you know, so like, for example, one thing would be if the buildings are old, but you can have buildings that are old that are in good repair, or you may have that the area is growing in Illinois, it can be that the area is growing less rapidly than the rest of uh, the city. But since you can draw the boundaries of the TIF, um, arbitrarily. Right. So you can draw the boundaries of the TIF around exactly those parcels that are growing more slowly, even though the parcels around them may be growing fast. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you can, and, and then I guess the third thing is that at least uh, my experience is, so the way this works is that, that uh, the, the, usually the Department of Economic Development in the city will come to the city council and say, we would like to have you to agree on this TIF project. Yeah. If the city council votes and, and says, yeah, this is this meets, you know, they certify that it's met the state qualifications to be a TIF district. So right. they certify it's blighted and then they pass a resolution. Courts are very reluctant to kind of step in and say, we're they're gonna they're gonna uh, overturn the wisdom of the legislature. If the legisla legislature says, the elected officials say, this is a blighted area, right. the courts aren't likely to do it, and the state's also not likely to overturn it. Right. So in a sense, anything the city council is willing to say is a TIF district is likely to be a TIF district, almost regardless of the extent to which it conforms to the legal requirements. So we yeah. see very, very few cases uh, in which that can be overturned. So, I mean, really, um, the, you know, the, the groups that are most likely to oppose TIF and actually put some, you know, force the city council to, uh, to think seriously about this matter is to give other overlying governments like school districts a little more leverage in the negotiation process. So in some states, they, the school districts can essentially opt out. I don't, I don't know what the situation uh, is in Montana, but if, if the school district can opt out, that usually takes a lot of the revenue uh, out of the TIF and makes it <laughs> so the city can pledge its own future revenues to the TIF. But if yeah. it can't pledge the school district future revenues, then they're more, less likely to do it. Well, so to give you an update on some of the developments in Missoula, this has been actually very interesting to continue to track because um, just recently, I think it was a couple of months ago, there was some attempts to to change the, the direction of tax increment financing. And, and they the, our local officials explicitly stated it was because of the targeted opposition of activists like me um, that were talking about um, draining the general fund and impacting essential services. And so as Missoula continues to grow and the, the tax districts um, divert uh, that increment to the Missoula Redevelopment Agency instead of the general fund, our mm -hmm. argument has been that, that this is um, causing part of the housing crisis, the, the affordability crisis. It's starving um, the general fund and leading to continued increases in property taxes to keep up um, with what's being sort of drained. And so one of the developments has been then to um, invite 
a member of the school board as a member of the Missoula Redevelopment Agency. And they're also bringing a member of the county in um, almost to kind of you know, bring them into the fold so that they can, my, I mean, my cynical perspective is that they'll just provide some PR cover um, because our county officials are pretty in the pocket of our uh, local elected officials and our mayor's been in power for 16 years. And so we have a lot of consolidated power in our political establishment here. Um, but it's been interesting because there's also been some moves to limit uh, the percent per district that can be used. Um, I think to avoid some of these huge expenditures that cause a lot of PR problems for our elected officials. And then there was a effort to say that daycare is now going to be a priority for tax increment financing. And they've since kind of backed off that plan because of criticism, um, especially from one of the urban renewal districts that's been waiting to get um, to get their slice of the pie. And they didn't like that, that uh, reduction of the percentage that they could use for projects. Mm-hmm. But it's been very interesting to see now some actual movements by um, city and county officials to um, to really, I think, take into consideration the, the very effective targeted criticism that people like me have been bringing for the last couple of years. And so um, I, I'm so excited to give you that little update so you know what's <laughs> happening here in Missoula. Well, that, that, that's interesting. It, it, uh, you know, I, I would say, uh, you know, it, trying to incorporate the views of the school district and the county, you know, it seems like a positive direction, but it, it can be co-optation too. Yeah. So exactly, you know, how much leverage do they have is an important question. Right. And, you know, often there's a lot of, I would say, interaction between different levels of government. So the county may need the city to cooperate and the city may need the county to cooperate. And similarly with school districts yeah. as they work together. And uh, so, you know, it, it, it's a complicated, it's a complicated kind of situation. And I think they do need probably people like you. Um, I, I, I don't know about your exact activities, but yeah. people outside of government also to keep an eye on this and, and, and to sort of like demand answers. And I think one thing we've done really quite well here in Chicago is there's a lot more transparency about TIF than when I started working on this. Yeah. So we have a website that provides, you know, loads of information and we have information about how the money in TIF is spent, and and we've we've done a good job of of a better job of keeping track of it. Those of us who in the research community always want more data sooner and cleaner, right? But um, you know, so that's one thing that I think can help people like yourselves and others who are who are just interested in in knowing about this. And you know, I, I guess one thing I want to say about that is like, you know, the developers will always say, well, you know, we don't want to tell you too much. In, about it because you know this if if we announce exactly what we're going to do in terms of the development that might shot you know cause land prices to go up or cause competitors to give them a competitive advantage etc and there's some truth to that but i think that argument is sometimes overused so often we don't know about the tiff until it's a done deal right we don't get a chance to ask questions early on and and i i I acknowledge some tension there but i would like to see more transparency earlier in the process yeah uh, about it you know Uh, i i I worked um locally at the pavarello center and so this is an emergency homeless shelter that 
um, received tax increment financing as part of its strategy to build a facility on West Broadway. And so, you know, I've seen obviously positive impacts, um, positive community impacts from um, taking a what was a very blighted part of West Broadway, a very rundown building, and and placing a you know a new a new shelter there. Um, but one of the right next door to the the homeless shelter, um, there was a business that received around sixty seven thousand dollars in tax increment financing for a lot of that curbside kind of uh-huh. development, the beautification, the landscaping. Um, and it was a it was a private restaurant, and they received that money. I think in two thousand nineteen. Um, open the business, and now the business is closing. They're selling it um, a couple of years later, and um, I mean, whoever buys it can can just scrape the the property. They don't have to maintain any of the improvements that sixty thousand sixty seven thousand dollars went to um, you know to improving. And so, some of those tangible on the ground examples can I think be informative, but it is after the fact. I mean, we're not going to get that sixty seven thousand dollars back. Um, another thing, though, I wanted you to speak specifically about, because um, back in December 18th, 2019, um, one of the things that you discussed was the bond that Stockman's Bank used and the unusual nature of, of that Stockman's Bank setup. I was trying to describe it to a friend the other day, and I, I garbled it. I'm an English major. I'm not very uh, – I don't have a good mind for, for finances. So, um, But but the – I've also interviewed Jesse Ramos, a fiscal conservative on city council, who was very critical of that particular um, that particular situation. So could you speak a little bit to that Stockman Banks bond and the nature of of what that what that sort of raised as a red flag for you? So I I think we're we're going back and I'll try to recall. I'm not sure that I'm not I I, I want to be careful here because I'm not sure I remember all the details correctly. But my my recollection was that the TIF money was the way they were going to use the TIF money was to service a bond. And the, the project was essentially to uh, help the bank, uh, I believe, redevelop a property or maybe Correct. build a new property. It was going to redevelop a property. And the, the odd thing about this was that the bank was going to kind of lend the money and then it was going to use the TIF money to kind of pay itself back, as I recall. Is that, right. Is that, that's good. Yes. So, yeah, that's and I, I think I said at the time I'd never heard of a case like that. And it seems, you know, it, it just it, it just doesn't smell quite right, to be right. honest. Yeah, and one of this is probably legal. And, you know, when in my activities um, in bringing attention to this, you know, I want to be above board and see this transparency increase um, because, right. Um, I have known some local officials that have tried to bring more transparency to this process and and they're not met well with with um, they're not received well in, in their efforts. Um, and, and it's really become a challenge, I think, as Missoula. I mean, the name of my podcast is Zoom Town because uh-huh. places like Missoula are, are seeing such an accelerated um, rate of growth because we are an ideal place for people to work remotely. Um, uh-huh. And so the idea that we need to incentivize private development is, is kind of insane at this point. But um, another thing that I wanted to ask you about um, in terms of how developers kind of look at this my sense is that developers almost when they know that they're going to look at something in an urban renewal district, they almost can guarantee that um, like landscaping, utility lines getting buried, all of this can almost be a part of like baked into their to their um, assessment of what it's going to cost to develop the property. Do you see developers sort of um, including tax increment financing when the use has become so consistently um, predictable. Um, is that something that developers sort of just bake into the, what their profit margin is going to be? Well, you know, I think you know, in the city of Chicago, uh, 
developers pretty much expect that they're going to get a TIF if they're going to do a major development. And, and right. I guess one thing I would say about this is, you know, of course, the larger developers, the developers that, with, you know, that are, have national chains or something like that, they're much better at working with the city council than the small kind of independent entrepreneur, obviously. Yeah. And they know they have the they already have the lawyers on staff. They've done this elsewhere. Maybe they've done it before in Chicago. And so, you know, that is a problem as well in that this kind of things like relatively complicated economic development incentives like TIF, uh, and especially the, they're, they're not only uh, relatively complicated, but they're also discretionary. The city council can either give it or not give it. Right. Those tend to benefit um, developers with more resources compared to new, you know, younger developers that are, are, are just, you know, starting one project or something like that. Right. So, so that's a, an issue uh, for sure. Um, it, yeah. So it, that is, that is problematic. And in Chicago, it's become almost like uh, expected where it had, I think we've, we've cut back on it some, but at one point it had become almost like, well, why would I, why would I not get a TIF? Everybody else right. is getting a TIF and I'm at a competitive disadvantage if I don't get a TIF. So it's, it's kind of economists often talk about that. This is a race to the bottom <laughs> where everybody's paying just as little as they can yeah. because you know, that's just the competitive process. Well, and I think that's a very important point to make because locally we have blue line development. So they do regional housing development for oftentimes, you know, targeted populations that are in need of subsidized housing. And as um, organ or as businesses like blue line development develop the expertise, um, it's almost kind of like a regulatory capture. They then have that expertise to, to take advantage of these subsidies in different areas um, whereas the, the new upstart uh, company um, is going to not know necessarily all of, all of that process. And it's been interesting um, to see that happen here locally because um, Blue Line Development, uh, for example, they're doing Trinity Apartment Complex, and that did not receive tax increment financing. They, they're looking at different schemes, um, different benefits, and it's going to ultimately, I think, serve a very needed uh, population that, that really needs services. But my speculation about them not using TIF is because the for a while, the project manager was the daughter of the um, director of the Missoula Redevelopment Agency, Ellen Buchanan. And so I think the optics were just a little too um, too too uncomfortable if, if that project received tax increment financing. Instead, they received the county um, donating the land. And so they got some other, some other benefits for developing that. But um, it's been interesting to see companies like Blue Line Development who now use this expertise as a, as a part of their promotion for, for you know, what they're able to do regionally. Um, and so that's, that's an interesting point to make, I think, as, as uh, critics and, and policymakers are looking at ways to either ensure this tool can be used um, because I know people like me are now advocating for abolishing TIF. I, I really want to go around to state uh, state officials and say, you know, the next legislature, we just we need this toy taken away from our local officials because I don't I don't trust the use of it even even amongst the, the most well intentioned policymakers. Uh -huh. Do you see that abolish TIF sentiment um, developing in other areas like in your neck of the woods? Yeah, I mean it's certainly. Uh been discussed. I, I have yeah. to say, I'm not, I, I'm not in that camp myself. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I understand, you know, the abuse of TIF. I yeah. also think there are some 
you know, there's a virtue of TIFF that I that I that I try to explain. Yes, please speak it, to the virtue of it. That definitely <laughs> needs to be emphasized because I am a very uh, adamant critic at this point. So I have a hard time seeing the potential virtue. Well, I, I think that I think that you know the way that it should be used, and and to some extent the way a, a lot of the original um, legislation kind of intended it was to set up mutually compatible incentives for the city and the developer. Right? I mean. What's the alternative to TIF? The, if the alternative to TIF is to give no funding to developers, right. that can be problematic because there are places where it's really in the public interest to get some kind of economic development. If the, if the, if the second alternative is, okay, we're, not, we're, gonna, we're gonna give some benefits to developers, we're gonna give an upfront sort of uh, payment to the developer. Right. The developer is going to promise X and we're going to we're going to give them money based on that promise. The yeah. problem with that is once the developer gets the money, they have no incentive to follow through with the 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 development as discussed. And yeah. often things change. The, the good thing about TIF is if land values don't go up, if parcel value, real estate values don't go up, you don't get any revenue out of it. So the so the incentives are compatible. The problem, I think, is that you know that it, it's often misused. It's that yeah, you get development, but the developer, the development would have happened anyway. Is right, the big right. problem, or the development would have happened anyway? You know, in a close by location, so you're just moving development from one area into another. And also the problem is, as we talked about before, the kind of the exploitation of overlying governments right. at the city, it gives the city too much power. Um, so, so those are the kind of issues. I, and, you know, I, I have to admit, I think, you know, it's going to take some very uh, good legislative footwork to write legislation that's tight enough to stop abuses. Yeah. But I think there has been progress made. I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with the example of California. So California is really the place where tax increment uh, financing started. It, okay. was, it was used very, very widely. And, and, and uh, something which contradicts what I always also said before about it being mostly in the Midwest, but California was the exception. Okay. So it's used very widely in California. And um, I think it was around 2011 or so, they just got disgusted with it and they got rid of the TIF program. They just, That's totally, right. they just totally eliminated it. Um, but now they've brought back TIF and they've brought it back with kind of much more narrow confines. And it's an interesting experiment. I think we're probably too early in the experiment to know whether it's going to really work in California, but that's kind of the, you know, the direction you know, in California, as usual, maybe setting an example for the rest of the country about how TIF can be used uh, appropriately. So uh, I think we need to have uh, legislators look at this. You know, it, it's hard in a political environment. It's very yeah. hard because, right, the developers carry a lot of the world with the, a lot of the word with the lobbyists. And um, it's hard to get the state legislatures to write really good legislation, but I think it's possible and maybe we can develop model legislation uh, to kind of improve TIF. But I wouldn't get rid of it altogether because I do think uh, it's one of the few tools we have to get really incentive compatible kind of agreements between developers and governments. 
Yeah. So there's the risk of uh, tossing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, <laughs> and, and really the work at the state needs to be done. If, if the supporters of the tool want to see the tool continue to be available for, for the ways in which I think it has created public benefit, it has um, helped address areas of blight that otherwise wouldn't um, have been developed that whole like, but for legal speak when it comes to, to justifying right. TIF projects. Um, but at, at this point in Missoula, you know, I, I think a better argument can be made at this point for, you know, some kind of limitations on local municipalities. Um, and, and the last legislative session, there wasn't much interest, I think, from from conservatives who had all of the power at the state level. I mean, they really had a chance and an opportunity that I think was missed to uh -huh. do something to rein it in. But my suspicion is that um, that money tends to speak to both political sides of the aisle and that uh, enough TIF money, TIF money in Missoula is flowing around that that I don't think it's actually seen as too much of a problem by even some of the conservatives that, that like to take shots at our liberal mayor. Um, but when they had the opportunity to do something about it, they did not. So it's been an interesting thing to see some of the posturing um, and I, I wonder how, how loudly that money speaks behind the posturing in those closed uh, room deals that, that tend to um, develop, I think. so. Well, I, I, I have to say TIFF has been one of the fun projects I've worked on in that yeah. um, both sides of the ideological spectrum, uh, you know, tend to have mixed emotions about it. So yeah. the, the Democrats are the more liberal people. They don't like the fact that you're subsidizing business. And so they tend to not want TIF. And the conservatives don't like the fact that government's getting involved in sort of manipulating the economy. And so yeah. they don't like it. But then both of them kind of like, oh, well, the, the you know, the the liberal side wants to use the TIF money for things like low-income housing and daycare and those kinds of things. And the more conservative people like, well, the, you know, they're getting a lot of funding from the business community and the business community likes it. So I think I, in that way, I mean, I, I tend to, uh, you know, uh, be uncomfortable with things where there's a strict ideological divide and this yeah. one is is kind of fun to work on because they can talk to people on both sides of the aisle about it well, one, of the, one of the funny examples you know i'm just a i'm just a humble little podcaster that's <laughs> that's not really um held to a lot of the other expectations of legacy media and so i get to be a little bit more um honest it gets me in trouble sometimes but um one ex one example there was a you know the, our last political cycle for our, our mayor's position uh, mayor engen was going against lisa tripke and Lisa Tripke had some connections in the conservative sort of realm. And it was interesting to see like Brett's RV, for example, support Lisa Tripke. And when push came to shove, uh, there were some media reports about how Brett's RV also took tax increment financing. And the way that almost played out was like, you know, Don Corleone, our mayor, Engen, you know, <laughs> saying, hey, Okay, you're criticizing um, my, my use of this. Well, you took some money. So what are you criticizing about if you're willing to take this money for your, for your landscaping needs and development needs? And so it's, it's interesting because I think the money with tax increment financing in these urban renewal districts has been so widespread and the, and the use has been so widespread that now that there is some criticism, everyone's kind of compromised to some degree. Everyone's probably yeah. taking a little bit of that sweet, sweet tip tipping um uh you know incentives so it makes right. it difficult to criticize it when your your own pockets may have been lined by that benefit so <laughs> for sure right right well <laughs> professor merriman i am i'm so happy that we've had a chance to to talk today um this two-year anniversary of 16 million dollars going to potentially going to a, a private developer um i think i think tip is pretty exciting in missoula and is going to continue to be pretty exciting um, and I may have some projects in the works that that might be coming out in a month or so that that might be 
um, even more exciting about, about what local activists were up to in 2019 um, to bring awareness about this. And so okay. I, I thank you for helping me um, educate the public so that we can be as informed as possible um, as we uh, use our limited resources for community development. So, so thank you so much. I hope you had Thanks. fun with this today. Yeah, it was, it was a fun conversation. I just okay. I just want to say I've never been to Missoula, but you, you make me anxious to visit. I was supposed to go oh, many years to. ago and had a trip canceled. So I'll, I'll try and make it sometime. You definitely have to come through. It is a, it is a beautiful town. Um, and I'm trying to also develop some unauthorized walking tours of Missoula. Oh, um, and I might actually use tax increment financing as one of my uh, one of my little sticks about, you know, uh, improving the, the, the public uh, community. So um, if you do come through, get in touch with me. I'd love to help show you around. So. OK, thanks a lot. OK, All right, thank care. you so much. I will go Bye. ahead and hit stop. All right. That was David Merriman. And I just realized that I didn't give him a proper introduction, being kind of lazy since he wasn't actively um, interviewed, like in the process of doing the interview. So now let me just uh, say that David F. Merriman, um, he's a senior scholar, IGPA, chair of the Fiscal Health of Illinois Working Group. Um, he is at the College of Urban Planning and Public Affairs at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Um, part of his expertise, he's a fiscal and economic policy uh, leader of IGPA's Fiscal Health of Illinois Working Group, um, and he's the James J. Stuckel, President Professor of Public Administration at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His major area of study is state and local public finance. Professor Merriman directs the Fiscal Futures Project, which created and maintains uh, a comprehensive and consistently defined measure of the... Hold on. I think I'm missing some of this. Uh, measure of the Illinois state budget. He has published extensively about the effect of tax increment finance policy on local economic growth and the determinants of tobacco tax avoidance. He has also studied Walmart's impact on urban economic development. His most recent research concerns state and local business taxation. Um, okay, cool. Ooh, let's do a little bit more uh, former experience. Uh, Professor Merriman was a visiting scholar at the New England Public Policy Center, Federal Reserve Bank of Boston from August 2014 to July 2015. He's also been a senior research associate at Urban Institute and a consultant to the World Bank on intermittent assignments with Human Development Network. Professor Merriman was a visiting researcher at the Institute of Economic Research at Hitotsubashi University in Tokyo, Japan. My apologies for butchering that. Before joining um, UIC, Professor Merriman spent 20 years on the faculty at Loyola University of Chicago. So yeah, um, I should have probably said that on the on the upfront. Uh, Professor Merriman didn't know he was talking to a not all that professional podcaster still figuring his SHIT out, um, but he knows his TIF and I'm glad to have had that opportunity to talk to, to Mr. Merriman. So thank you so much. Um, and again, tune in next week. You can hit me up at willskink at yahoo.com. That's W-I-L-L-S-K-I-N-K at yahoo.com. And this is Zoom Cron, the Chronicles of Zoomtown.